Now we're going to turn in our time in the Word of the Lord to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 7 to 11 as we continue our work through the letter of 1 John. 1 John 2 verses 7 to 11. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your Word, we ask for your blessing upon our hearts and our souls. We know that your Word is living and active, and so we pray not that you would give strength to your Word, but that you would give strength to us to comprehend it, and that you would bless us with it. It does not return void, and so as it convicts and as it hardens, we pray that it would not harden any of us today, but that it would convict us and encourage us, draw us nearer to Christ, who is himself the perfect one of love. We pray in his name, amen. 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. There are very few things in life that get us more riled up and get us more upset more quickly than real or perceived hypocrisy. We see this in our own time most recently with politicians, members of Congress, mayors, governors, this sort of thing, where there are perceptions of hypocrisy, at least perceptions, and sometimes realities of perceptions. Just a couple examples, one of which is from a state, a particularly undesirable state, not too far from our own, and in this state, the governor declared that the members, uh, the citizens of the state, were not to travel to even their in-state vacation homes. All the while, her husband, the first man, I don't really know if that's what you call a a first man. Anyways, her her husband was calling up the company that uh, oversees their boat at their private vacation home to see if he could use his pole because he is the governor's husband to get their boat put in the lake before everybody else's boat at the home that they weren't supposed to go to. Or you think of another example in a state very near to ours which shall remain nameless except that it hosts the Indianapolis 500. And in this state, the governor ruled that you were not, that there could be no fans at the Indy 500 this year, but initially... He intended to attend the race in his luxury suite. These kinds of things enrage us because we, we view people as being, as being hypocrites. There's one rule for me and another rule for you. There's one rule for the better and there's one rule for the lesser. Of course, hypocrisy is not original to our own age. Jesus dealt with hypocrites all the time in his own age. But John wants us to see, as we come into the very first verse in this new section of his letter, that he is anything but a heretic or anything but rather a hypocrite. 
He wants us to see that the message that he is going to speak on, that he is going to write on, is not something that's just for them, but it's something which he himself practices. And he begins right away in that very first word. It's two words in the NIV. It's one word in the Greek and one word in the ESV. It says, dear friends. And that dear friends come out, comes out of the Greek word agape, which I think most of us would be familiar with. It means love. So you could, transla- you could translate this just as easily and perhaps more easily, more accurately, beloved. That is ones that John loves. And he does not despise the people he writes to, but he has an affection for them. He has a desire for their benefit. And so before John gets past even one word in this section, he wants to make sure that they know that he is willing to put his money where his mouth is and he already is practicing what he preaches. You can recall that John is writing the letter of 1 John in response to a specific occasion. And what had happened was that a significant group of people had left his churches. It's a group of churches. They call it the Johannine community, this group of churches, a group of people had left, a significant group of people had left, and they had left saying that John and his gospel were kind of old news, that they had a new and greater understanding, that they had a, a new and fresh Christianity, that John was, was kind of an old fuddy-duddy. He is an old man at this point. They're saying, we need to move on. It's time to move past simply what John was saying. And so they had left and they had claimed this, this new knowledge. And they had accused John of not being with it. And so John is going to give an answer to these accusations in two ways that seem on the surface to be contradictory. He's going to say things that seem to be uh, illogical, that they cannot go together in the first verse and a half. We'll look at verse 7 in the first half of verse 8 to see how John gives an answer to these accusations. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. So first John begins by saying, I I am not writing you anything new, nothing original, nothing novel. What I am writing to you, what I have taught to you is old and has been around for a very, very long time. If you jump forward into verses 9 and 10 and 11, what you see is the the command that John is speaking of is the command to love. And John, before he gets to specifically saying what the command is, says what I'm speaking to you of is nothing new. And it's nothing new in two ways. It's nothing new because the command to love goes way back into the Old Testament. You go back to the very first books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, and there in the Law of Moses, you have the command to love. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what is the answer? But he answers, to love God and to love your neighbor. And he goes back to the Law of Moses. He, he kind of weaves together two passages, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus, to make this to make this point it's a very old point but beyond that secondly it's old in another way he says you have had this from the beginning and that is that from the very first moment that you were converted the gospel of Jesus Christ of salvation by grace through faith 
was accompanied immediately with a command and instruction to love. Now, when John writes, some of these people that he writes to would have already been second-generation Christians, people who would have grown up in the church. They would have known nothing but growing up in the church. And they would have, like many of our children, been taught from that very young age that they are to love each other, that they are to love each other as they love themselves. And so John doesn't write anything new to them. He, he's, not, he's not straying from the original message no new doctrine, no innovation, nothing like that. He's sticking to the message of Christ. But, then he says, as you get into the first part of verse 8, yet I am writing you a new commandment. Now how can it be both? How can it not be new? How can it be not new and new? Right? That seems to be illogical. Something cannot be not new and new. But that's not entirely true. Something can be not new in one way and new in another way. And that's how John means it. It's, it's not new in the sense that he's, already, that he's already talked about. It's an old command. They've learned to love from the very beginning. But it's new in the sense that it's new and fresh in Christ. When Jesus comes, He brings a new depth, a new freshness, a new realization, and a perfection of love that goes far beyond what had ever been taught or what had ever been modeled in the Old Testament times. Jesus brings a new command of love. And as you move, and as you move back into John's Gospel, John, remember these themes, they run through the Gospel, they run through his letters. He goes back and he recalls what Jesus had said in John. 13 verse 34 Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another <clears throat> just as I have loved you you also are to love one another a new commandment I give to you now Jesus knows good and well that the command to love had already been there because Jesus cites the command to love when, he a when he's asked about the greatest of the commandments the, that you are to love one another, that's not new. The new part is what he says, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. That Jesus loves in a deeper, more profound way than had ever been loved before. And so Jesus raises the bar of love. Whereas perhaps before people understood the bar of love to be about here, Jesus brings it up here. He brings it up to what we might say is a superlative degree. Jesus models perfect love, and we are to seek and strive insofar as we, as we are able to follow the example of the love of Christ. Now just think through how it is that Jesus raises this bar of love. You go to two examples concerning marriage. And Jesus is asked in his Jesus is asked in this in this time how can a why can a man what grounds must a man have to divorce his wife? And there was kind of a couple of different schools of thought in this. One school of thought said, well, you can divorce your wife really for anything you want. If she displaces you in any way, you can send her, you can send her away with a certificate of divorce. That was kind of the liberal position. The more conservative position was, no, you have to have some kind of, some kind of reasonable reason to send her away away. But there was still a good amount of reasons. But Jesus doesn't side with the liberals. He doesn't side with the conservatives. Jesus sides with the Creator. He says God made them in the beginning, male and female. He made them together to become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And what he says in that is that the, the standard for love is far higher than the liberals would have had it with their you can send your wife away for any reason, and it's higher than the conservatives would have had it that you can send your wife away for some reasons, that the love of God is that a husband is not to send his wife away at all. He goes ahead, and you can go back into Ephesians 5. You can see very much the same thing. Paul is teaching husbands how it is that they are to love their wives. And what's the example he gives? Love them as Moses loved? No. Love them as Abraham loved? No. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He uses the example of Christ as the perfect example of love. Now, man, that is a very high bar to hit. Because... Christ did not love His church just in part, but He loved His church in living and in dying. And that's the bar that Jesus raises. Jesus, of course, as well, is the one who, is the one who taught all the different kinds of parables about love. He's the one who taught the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where love transcends what would otherwise be impenetrable social boundaries. And he is the one who met with the Samaritan woman at the well. A Samaritan woman of scandalous reputation. And he is the one who ate with sleazy Zacchaeus. And he is the one who taught us that we were even to love our enemies. And he didn't just teach these things. He wasn't a hypocrite. But he lived these things to perfection. That's why Paul can say to the Romans that Christ is the end of the law. It's not that there are no commands left for people to obey. It's that Christ is the perfect finisher of the law. He lived it to its perfection. And so that's the newness of this command. This newness of the command to love comes and that we have a perfect example to follow, whereas before there was no perfect example to follow whatsoever. And so that brings us, that brings us then into the second part of verse 8. He says, its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. When Jesus says its truth, he's referring to the truth of the commandment, its truth is already being seen in him and in you. And what he means by that is that obedience to this command is already being seen. That there is already some fruit that can be seen in this. Now we don't need to go back and rehash all the ways in which the, the truth of the commandment to love was realized in Jesus. But what we can see here is that John is telling these people that he, that he loves, he's giving them the encouragement to say that what Jesus commanded, you are already doing. Now, were they doing it to perfection? No. You go back to chapter 1, and John again says, uh, anybody who claims to be without sin is a liar. But he's saying that what we see, what I see in you, is that you are striving and succeeding in loving in a way that Christ loved. He wants to encourage them in that, that they are mirroring, at least in part, the image of Christ. And this demonstrates, this demonstrates a genuine faith. You go back again to John, John 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. They are already bearing the fruit. And as they bear the fruit, they see and John sees that they are abiding in Christ. And remember, these are people who would have been, who would have been left in the wake of these false teachers, these false Christians. They would have been left doubting and wondering Do they have the truth or do we have the truth? Do they have Christ or do we have Christ? And John says, you have Christ. And you can see it in this fruit. And he wants them to have that encouragement. Why? Because he loves them. Beloved, have this confidence. Then he turns to the negative, though, in verse 9. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. By this point in 1 John, if you read it through, your mind might be saturated with these contrasts. You start with light and darkness. You have truth and lies and obedience and disobedience and new and old. And now you have love and hate. And we're only a chapter and a half into the letter. You see that John wants to demonstrate the difference between what he is teaching and what his churches are holding on to and what those who have left are being taught and what they are holding on to. And what he says in verse 9 is that a claim to know Christ, a claim to know God, is the claim to belong to Him. Not just to know of Him, but to have actually a relationship with Him. And if you are going to have that relationship with Him, then you can't hate your brother. You have to love your brother. Loving your brother is fruit. And without that fruit, whatever you may say about your relationship with the Lord, it's all a lie. I want us to stop here. I want us to kind of put a a parenthesis in the middle of this, this teaching on the commandment to love because I think there's an important balance to be had. If you were to ask if you were to ask uh, a many evangelical and you would say, uh, give me the gospel very simply, I think too many would say, well, love God and love your neighbor. I hope that's not the gospel. If loving God and loving your neighbor is the gospel, then we are in very big trouble. Because if loving God and loving your neighbor is the gospel, we haven't kept the commandments. And if our hope is in loving God and loving our neighbor, then we have no no hope at all. If our gospel is love God, love your neighbor, that's not salvation, that's legalism. Because that's the law. It's when Jesus is asked by the Pharisaic lawyer, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answers a question about the law. And he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But he finishes with this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving your neighbor won't save you. That's important. That's crucial for us to understand. Loving God and loving your neighbor, keeping the commandments of God, won't save you. Faith is how we are saved, which is a gift of God. But, though loving God and loving your neighbor is not the gospel, the gospel always leads to love. And so we have to have love to substantiate our claim to to believing the gospel. If we claim to know Christ, then we will love. 
And it's like one commentator said very simply, lack of love means lack of God. That's what John is encountering here. He's encountering people who claim to love God, who claim to know and be known by God, but who do not love. These are people that it seems particularly do not love John. And by extension, do not love John's church. And by extension of both, they demonstrate that they do not love Jesus. And while with their mouths they say one thing, their lack of love betrays something entirely different is true of them. While seeking to be in the light, their lack of love demonstrates that they are in fact still in the darkness. Now it may seem though like John has kind of hit repeat a couple times. You go back into the first chapter and you see a couple things. We see that John says, if you walk in the darkness while saying you're in the light, you're a liar. If you say you know God while habitually disobeying Him, you're a liar. And here again, now he says, anyone who says they're in the light and hates another Christian brother is still in the darkness. He needs us to see that. But then he goes on in verse 10 to the positive. And he says, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. You know, it's the same, it's the same teaching as verse 9. It's just not in the negative. Now it's in the positive. If you hate your brother, you're in the darkness. But if you love your brother, then you are in the light. So what does it mean to love? <clears throat> what does it mean to love your brother? This isn't issue-squishy, warm, fuzzy, Hallmark Channel love. This is nitty-gritty, brotherly, Christian love. Simon Kistemacher, the late great Reformed commentator and theologian, said love is not so much a matter of words as it is of deeds. We might say that love has legs. That love moves. Love is not just an absence of hatred. Love is not just an absence of open dislike. But love is an active seeking the well-being of another person. And if we do not actively seek the well-being of our other brothers and sisters in Christ, then we do not love. And again, love is the essential fruit of the Gospel. And the love specifically in view here is love for one another. Love for others inside the church. The Bible has some things to say about loving those who are outside the church, but it has a lot to say about loving those who are inside the church, loving those who are in here. And we see this a number of places. I'll just give a, a few brief examples. The first from Hebrews 3, verse 13 but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is an act of true and genuine love. Not to talk about the weather. We can talk about the weather. I woke up to extremely loud crashes of, of thunder and lightning. We can have conversations about the weather all day and every day and never get to the point where we exhort one another as long as it is called today that we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we love each other enough to have meaningful conversations. That is to love one another. You go to Romans 12, verse 13. Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That is to give ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our 
money, of our effort to contribute to the needs of the saints. That's an act of love. And to whom? To the saints. Go to Galatians 6, verse 10. Again, Paul singles out love towards other Christians. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Then finally, Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 8-10, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I, I think if we did a better job in here of loving each other, we could be spending less time in outreach with more fruit in our outreach. This is how it was in the early church. The early church didn't have vacation Bible school. The early church didn't have these great, these great programs that we have. What the early church had was a robust witness of their love for each other. People wanted to get into the church because in the church they could find things they couldn't find anywhere else. They had a sense of community. They had a security. They had a stability. They had the guarantee that if they had a need, that it would be met by someone, some way, somehow. And you couldn't find that out in the world. The world was a brutal place. If you had a girl, if you had a girl born, sometimes you would put the girl baby outside the city in the trash heap because you didn't want a girl, you wanted a boy. And what would the Christians do? The Christians would go and get the girl babies out of the trash heap, adopt them, and raise them up. This was the kind of love that the church had. It would bring in orphans. It would bring in widows. And it cared for its own. And so people were knocking the doors down of the early church, even when it was being persecuted, to get in. Why? Because there was something there they couldn't find anywhere else. You know, the early church actually had such a glut of people trying to come in sometimes, they would make people wait two or three years to get in before they knew that they were Christians, not just coming in for the love of the community. We don't have that problem. Why don't we have that problem? Well, I think probably for any number of reasons, one of which is that we don't have the robust love for one another that was on obvious display in the early church. Perhaps there's not something in here that is so different that it cannot, obviously cannot, be found anywhere else. But our love for one another demonstrates the truth of our claims to be in Christ. Now I want to talk about something just a little bit. I tried to pound this into the kids this summer in our, in our time on our trip. And it's the, the end of this passage from 1 Peter, the 10th verse. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's not optional. That's not optional. It, it doesn't say, as each has received a gift, consider using it to serve one another. It doesn't say as each has received a gift, maybe try to use a gift once in a while to serve one another. It simply says use it to serve one another. And sometimes this means getting off our butts and doing something. There is a phenomena that I, I have seen again and again and again in churches, not just this one, but this one included. 
You know, praise the Lord, we've had this need met. But you read the bulletin, and sometimes these announcements, we have a need for service run week after week after week after week. And every year, one of them, I think, is Sunday school. Sometimes you wonder to yourself, has no one here been in church their whole lives? Has no one here actually gone to Sunday school themselves? Has no one here learned the Bible enough that they could teach it to four and five and six-year-olds? Because if no one here can teach the Bible to four and five and six-year-olds, then we have a major problem. On the other side, if people here can teach the Bible to four and five and six-year-olds and don't want to, then we have another problem. But either way, we have a problem. And the phenomena that I see is that many of us sit back and watch again and again and again as the same people volunteer again and again and again to do the work of the church while the rest sit back and watch them do it like season ticket holders to a sports franchise. And that's not, that's not how it's supposed to work. The Lord does not gift just 10 or 20 people in a church of three or 400 with the ability to serve. The Lord gifts everybody in a church. And so when Peter says in verse 10, what we just read, use it to serve one another, he means use it to serve one another. Now we need people to bring meals to the sick and to the shut-in and to those who've just had children. We need, to, we need people to bring meals and to just visit with people. You can't go to the hospital and visit now, but most of the time you can. And isn't it just a great act of love to take an hour and a half out of your day to go sit with somebody who's had surgery or something of that sort? We need people who will care. We need people who will show hospitality. Just ask yourself this question. The first question, do I have a kitchen table? The second question, how many people that I'm not related to would know what my kitchen table looks like? The command to show hospitality is not optional. It is, again, a command. And I wonder if for so long, so many people in the church have sat on their hands that we don't even know the ways to love each other that we have been missing for all these years. Because we're so busy doing the same things without enough people. that we don't think of doing new things that the people who haven't served and won't served aren't doing. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book not long ago, very simple title, Just Do Something. I wonder if maybe we should replace that banner with one that says, just do something. What's the mission of the church? Just do something. Do something to serve each other. Do something to serve the Lord. That's what John would have us do. He would have us to love with a love that has legs with a love that moves and acts. And isn't that the same thing, those of you who were here when we walked through the letter of James? Isn't that what we saw again and again and again? The Lord's call to move. And if we were to see that, if we were to see the people of the church serving and loving, we would behold a beautiful thing, because what we would behold is love. And the love is a gift of God, and it is a perfect gift of God, and God gives beautiful gifts. And love is beautiful not just for what it does inside of us, 
but it is, a, it is also beautiful because it keeps us from stumbling. Love is like a spiritual light. Light prevents us from danger. Think of it this way. One of the worst feelings in the world is stepping on a Lego. They are small, they are sharp, and they are treacherous. And if you step on a Lego, you know right away that you have stepped on a Lego. But if you're walking across a floor covered in Legos in the light, it's not nearly so dangerous because if you see them, you can kind of brush them out of the way with your foot or you can dance. Now, you might drive your parents crazy with your mess of Legos. I drove my parents crazy with my mess of Legos all the time. Whenever they wanted to get rid of me, they could just say, go clean up your Legos because they knew there were always Legos to be cleaned up. But if you have the light on, you can dip and dodge all the way around that because the light brings safety. It keeps us from slipping and falling on the Legos on the floor. And that's how it is with love. Love is a light. Love prevents us from harming ourselves and others. Of course, it prevents us not from stumbling and falling in our bedroom. It prevents us from making a shipwreck of our souls. Love is a sort of spiritual safe harbor. So that is, but not so with hatred. We finish with this then in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. John writes this about those who had left his church. And can you feel, can you feel John's heartbreak? He's a pastor. He's an old man. He loved Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He was the best friend of Jesus. And he has gone out and he has seen churches planted and churches built. And now he's pastoring this group of churches in Ephesus. And he loves these people. And now he hears from afar that the churches have split. And some of those that he loved have gone. And they have begun to hate him. And they have begun to hate the rest of the Christians in this church. And now he has to write of them what we read in verse 11. Who hates his brother is in the darkness. Can you just feel the pastor's heart being wrenched by that? But he has to say it. He has to say it because it is true. And wouldn't you like to know the rest of the story? I would like to know if any of those who walked in the darkness came back into the light when they heard of what John had written. I would like to know if the Lord took them out of darkness and brought them into the light, but John doesn't give us that information, neither does history. But what we see here, rather, is a very simple truth. That if you hate a fellow Christian, you are not a Christian. Hatred is like turning the lights off in a room with a Lego-infested floor and then wandering around in it endlessly, hurting yourself again and again and again. Except, of course, you're not stepping on sharp objects, but you're making a shipwreck of your soul. And not just your soul, but your soul and body perhaps for the rest of eternity. And that's what was going on 
These people who had left, who were hating John and hating his church, they had left a wake of destruction behind them. Discouragement, sadness, and doubt. So discouraged and doubting and sad were these people in John's church that they had to be encouraged by a letter from the apostle himself, lest they begin to despair. The hatred of these who had left was so great and it harmed others so much. But most particularly, it harmed themselves. Because in their hatred of John and his church, they had hated Christ. And in the hatred of Christ, there is no hope. So John, I think, would have us learn two things and do one thing. He would have us learn that hatred is ugly and destructive, that love is beautiful, and he would have us do one thing, which is to love as Christ loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in the example of the Lord Jesus perfect, abiding, and enduring love. And we see it to a degree that we cannot match and we have not matched. We see in Him that the light of the command to love is already shining. But we do not want do not want to use that as a discouragement. As though somehow because he shines perfectly, we cannot shine, because John tells us that for those of us who love one another, we are already shining. And the truth of this command is already being realized in us. So give us a deeper a deeper desire to love, to obey this new commandment which Jesus gave, which was not new. Prevent us, save us from the danger of hating each other, and instill, allow us to walk in the light, which is Christ. Build in this church those who are here, those who are not, those who give their lives in this church to serve and those who don't. Give us a deep love one for another. Not because we are the same. Not because we are always lovely. Because we, together, one with another, belong to you. Same Heavenly Father and the same older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.